Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 6th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about one of the most mysterious objects in the universe. No, not the teenage brain. That was last week. This week, the mysterious dark matter with MIT astrophysicist Paul Schechter. Journalist Karen Hopkin will tell us a little about this program's new companion, the daily Scientific American 60-Second Science podcast. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. And Scientific American magazine contributing editor Sarah Simpson shares some thoughts about the late Steve Irwin. First up, astrophysicist Paul Schechter. There was quite a buzz a couple of weeks ago when a NASA-Harvard University study announced striking new evidence for dark matter. I wanted Schechter's perspective on the new findings. I got through to him last week while he was doing his own dark matter research at the Cerro Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. Professor Schechter, thanks for talking to us today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Can you give us the, the brief introduction to dark matter? Astronomers measure the masses of things by measuring the motions of things. And so we measure the masses of stars by watching them orbit around each other. Uh, we measure the masses of galaxies by watching the stars orbit in the galaxies. Uh, and by watching the motions of massive bodies around other massive bodies, we can infer masses. Uh, in the 1930s, Fritz Wicke, uh, an astronomer at Caltech, measured the mass of the Coma cluster of galaxies. A cluster of galaxies is what it sounds like. It's a cluster of Milky Ways, like our own, hundreds of them. And when he measured the mass of that cluster of galaxies, he, he measured a mass which was very much larger than the mass he would have gotten if he just added up the individual galaxies. And so he said, there's something else there. And that something else has, has come to be what's known as dark matter. And Yes, I think first it was uh, people, Ricky was a difficult person, and so for many years people just ignored him, but the evidence continued to accumulate. There was an interesting uh, moment of excitement uh, in the early 1970s with the Uhuru satellite. This was uh, one of the first satellites to observe the sky in, in X-rays. And the uh, Uhuru satellite measured X-rays coming from the Coma cluster of galaxies. Uh, the X-rays are emitted by a very, very hot gas, by a, it's called a plasma. Uh, it's a diagnostic of the presence of such a hot gas. And the amount of gas implied by, those, by that X-ray emission was very much larger than the mass uh, that people had thought was present in the galaxy. So people uh, thought that they might have, in fact, found the stuff that Zwicky had been measuring, the dark matter. They thought that, but what was the upshot? Well, the upshot was that it still fell short. Uh, Zwicky said that somewhere between a factor of 10 and 30 more mass had to be present uh, than was there in the galaxies. Uh, and the X-ray emitting gas uh, is maybe a factor of five more than is present in the galaxies, but uh, it's still not enough and probably falls short by another factor of five from what Zwicky was seeing. Okay, so so what that means is that most of the matter in the universe would have to be dark matter. If the coma cluster is representative, yes. Now, we have since looked for dark matter in many different ways, and in fact, that's a pretty good ratio. Uh, five times as much dark matter as matter in protons, neutrons, electrons, the stuff we're made of. Okay, so we, we assume that there's all this stuff out there that has mass, and the influence of that mass is being felt, but we can't see it, and we don't really know what it is. I wouldn't say we assume it. We've measured it. Okay, we right. We we assume it based on the measurements. Okay, so we know we infer, it. We infer. Okay, I'll compromise. We infer. Okay, we infer our measurements. So now let's talk a little bit about this this latest research that got so much attention recently. What makes this interesting uh, and a lot of fun is that 
uh, a variety of different techniques are brought to bear on the same problem. We think that dark matter is very different from protons, neutrons, and electrons. And in particular, we think that it doesn't interact with protons, neutrons, and electrons. Uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons pass right through it. They don't know they're there. And what you see in this particular cluster of galaxies is uh, two concentrations of galaxies, two clumps of galaxies, and also two clumps of hot X-ray gas. And the clumps of galaxies are further separated than the clumps of X-ray gas. The clumps of X-ray gas are closer to each other. We think the reason that they're closer to each other is that they passed through each other and slowed each other down. Galaxies, uh, they're mostly empty. They're a few stars and great voids, and so they can pass right through each other. And we think that the two clumps of galaxies have passed right through each other, but the gas, the two gas clouds, will collide with each other. And so we see a clus two clusters of galaxies which have passed through each other. The, they're separating from each other. The two clumps of galaxies have a distance between them. The two clumps of gas are also separating from each other, but they, the distance between them is smaller. Okay. So, so thus the far, there's nothing in what I've said that is incredibly spectacular. But a third, and we've used optical techniques to see the galaxy, we've used X-ray techniques in the Chandra satellite to see the X-rays. So far, everything's okay. But we've, a third technique is brought to bear, and that's the technique called weak gravitational lensing. And the idea there is that light passing past mass uh, first gets deflected, but it also gets distorted. Uh, you know, an image of an object uh, seen behind a massive object will be distorted in a phenomenon that's not unlike uh, a mirage on Earth. And so by measuring the distortions of objects behind this cluster of galaxies, galaxies that are behind this cluster of galaxies, you can measure the mass in this cluster of galaxies. And what's interesting is that the mass in the cluster of galaxies is not associated with the X-ray gas. There's five times as much mass in the X-ray gas as there is in the galaxies, but there's five times as much mass in something else associated with the galaxies than there is in the X-ray mass. The dark stuff has passed through, the two clumps of dark stuff have passed through each other and are traveling with the galaxies, leaving the X-ray gas behind. It is manifestly not the X-ray gas that's doing the weak lensing, that's doing the distorting. It's something else, and that something else is the uh, the dark matter. Well, you know, uh, physicists and uh, scientists in general have a wonderful trick that they play. When there's something they don't understand, they elevate it to some principle or new discovery. And so you don't say, I don't understand what's going on here. You say, I've discovered dark matter. Right. Now, why is it so exciting if we are still inferring the presence of the dark matter based on our observations when that seems to me to be what we've always done about the dark matter? You're correct. That it is a, what, what's different and exciting here is that the dark matter and the ordinary matter, and particularly the X-ray gas, are are, lo are not coextensive. They're not co-located. You know, because the X-ray gas interacts as a gas and gets slowed down, and one of the two clumps shows this beautiful shock. You know, it looks like the wake of a boat. There's just no question, but that one clump of gas is passed through the other at high speed. You see this wake from one of them. It's called the bullet cluster. It looks like a Harold Edgerton picture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's spectacular. There's no question that the, the gas has collided there. But the galaxies have traveled further than the gas. The gas has been retarded. And the dark matter, whatever or whatever it is that's mass, has traveled further. And so the, the hot gas 
which might have explained Zwicky's observation, is not producing the gravitational distortion. What's producing the gravitational distortion is associated with the galaxy. So what's special about this is that the dark matter and the hot gas have segregated. They're not coextensive. You can look at the picture, and by God, they're in different places. Uh, tell me, what are you doing in Chile? Well, I'm studying dark matter, naturally, <laughs> and studying it by studying the deflection of light around galaxies, in my case, rather than clusters of galaxies. It's very interesting. You know, on different scales, there, there, is, there is segregation between the dark matter and the ordinary matter. The solar system is entirely ordinary matter, or almost entirely. What that means is that the ordinary matter has condensed uh, within the Milky Way uh, and formed stars that are 100% ordinary matter. The dark matter has stayed much more extended, the dark matter. The, the thing that we're, what we're seeing in this cluster of galaxies, or double cluster, uh, is that uh, baryonic matter, ordinary matter, tends to interact with itself, and it gets slowed down in the course of these interactions. It also loses energy in these interactions and can, can condense. The dark matter, as far as we know, doesn't interact with ordinary matter and probably doesn't interact with itself either. And so it can't lose energy. It can't condense. It can't collapse and cool, but stays hot and stays more extended. So I use gravitational lensing to, this, to study as one goes from the center of a galaxy to the outer part of the galaxy, what is the relative proportion of dark matter to ordinary matter? At the very centers, we think it's mostly ordinary matter. At the edges, we think it's mostly dark matter. They are, in this, this case, probably centered the same, so it's not quite so dramatic to see the difference. You're just seeing a difference in proportions rather than a difference in the central location. But uh, I'm trying to determine the fraction of dark matter as a function of position in the galaxy, these other galaxies. How long have you been there? I got here, oh, it's very hard. I count nights rather than days. Sure. I've been on the mountain for three nights. I've, I've been observed for those three nights, uh, and I'm on the mountain for another three nights uh, to work on some instrumentation here. And it's very hard. People might not know, but when you get that incredibly precious time with the telescope, you're, you're basically going to be pulling all-nighters for the whole week, right? Uh, well, actually, the working on the instrumentation is a little more relaxed, but yes, it's three successive all-nighters, and I went to bed at 7.45 this morning, and of course my biological clock wouldn't let me sleep much more than about four hours. Plus you're all amped up because you're there in the first place. Yes. And high altitude, so there's not a lot of oxygen. It's not so bad. We're at 7,500 feet. You've got three quarters of an atmosphere. You know it. You know, uh, uh, if, you, if you know what your resting pulse is, uh, if you're lying down and resting up here, your resting pulse will be higher. Did you say which specific galaxies you're looking at? Well, uh, the, the galaxies I'm looking at are not people's favorites. Uh, the galaxies I look at are ones that happen to be in front of very bright objects behind them. Right, because that makes sense in terms of what your, your approach by trying to see the gravitational lensing. That's right. So I'll take any galaxy that does me the favor of drifting in front of another. I say drifting in front. Actually, that drifting takes hundreds of millions of years, right. and it is instantaneously at this moment in front of another. Right, and it actually happened probably millions of years ago. <laughs> More than that. Well, good luck with, with your uh, particular search for the dark matter. I hope you'll uh, keep us up to date on what you find, too. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking. It's been our pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. If you're interested in more about dark matter and gravitational lensing, Paul Schechter wrote a really nice accessible article on the subject that's available on the web. Go to his MIT webpage, that's at 
tinyurl.com slash r9yg6. And then click on the link to the article called Einstein's Mirage. Also, for more about dark matter and dark energy, which we didn't even discuss today, go to the Scientific American homepage, www.siam.com, and hit the link for Ask the Experts. You'll see a nice explanation of the dark stuffs in the astronomy area from Robert Caldwell, a cosmologist at Dartmouth College. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, it really is tough to lose weight because you're fighting built-in mechanisms that your body has to try to keep the weight on. Story two, an Australian academic's doctoral thesis consists of an analysis of Star Trek based on her study of every episode of the original series and its spin-offs. Story 3, researchers are turning waste straw into something more useful than gold, liquid gas. And Story 4, paleontologists say most dinosaur species have already been discovered. We'll be back with the answer, but first, there's a new member of the Scientific American podcast family. Every weekday, we'll be bringing you 60 Second Science, a minute packed with sciency goodness. The programs are available free at www.siam.com slash podcast and over at the iTunes Music Store. One of the voices you'll hear on 60 Second Science is veteran science journalist Karen Hopkin. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm great, Steve. How's it going? It's going okay. So uh, I think the first time I ever met you, you were operating the audio-visual controls in a lecture room at Einstein Medical School, or the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, as they prefer to be known. I believe I was one of those unfortunate students that was uh, losing the slides down in the slots and and begging people in the back row to lend me a pencil to try to, to pull them out. Well, fortunately, we're just doing audio, so... Now, you you did go on uh, from from running the projector there to get a doctorate in biochemistry from Einstein. That's right. I actually finished my PhD in, in 1992. I uh, was working on superoxide dismutases in bacteria. That's one of my favorite enzymes. I had to write a, a, an actual paper on that in uh, a class I took in school. Stops up uh, free radicals. What's not to love? And you also have some radio experience with a program that I think a lot of our listeners have probably heard of. I was a producer uh, for three years uh, for the um, Talk of the Nation Science Friday program with Ira Flato, and uh, that was a really uh, interesting experience to get to produce a an hour-long uh, radio program where we got to talk to guests and all sorts of uh, different topics. Um, you know, I trained as a biochemist, but, you know, I got to interview people about uh, subatomic particle physics uh, or science education and anything that was in the news. And uh, and also, now this is really unusual because you, you wound up being a science journalist, but you're also the co-author of, of a really big major textbook. Yeah, I came on board um, to work on the um, basic cell biology textbook called Essential Cell Biology, a sort of uh, sophomore, junior level, undergraduate um, textbook on cell biology. Basically, you know, this is the Golgi, color me green uh, kind of thing. Um, the lead author is Bruce Alberts, a guy who was uh, formerly president of the National Academy of Sciences. And um, he, uh, so this book is the companion book to the to the larger book that a lot of people know uh, called Molecular Biology of the Cell. That book is usually called uh, 
Big Alberts or Fat Alberts, and this other book is uh, known fondly as um, Baby Alberts, or in the German, Kleine Alberts. It actually says Kleine Alberts on the cover, in the little corner. It's very cute. So you're going to be doing some of these science, uh, 60 Second Science is the name of the new program. Well, I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, I think what we're going to try to do is uh, cover some uh, things that are in the news uh, that have to do with, with science, and also some of the um, quirkier things that might uh, fall through the cracks and that you wouldn't otherwise um, hear about. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Thanks for your time, Karen, and uh, get back to work. Well, thank you. I know. I got the, the following week's 60-second science stories to whip up. Yes, please go whip. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, the human body resists attempts to lose weight. Story two, Star Trek doctoral thesis. Story three, researchers turn straw into liquid gas. And story four, most dinosaur species are now known to science. Story one is true. Research presented at a major obesity conference this week shows that the body has strong mechanisms that fight weight loss, but weak ones to defend against weight gain, because starvation is really bad. For more, check out the September 4th story, Evolution, Not Just Gluttony, Led to Obesity Pandemic. That's in the news section on the website, www.siam.com, and click on this Thursday's edition of 60 Second Science at siam.com slash podcast. Story two is true. Dr. Diomi Baker's doctoral thesis was titled Broadcast Space, TV Culture, Myth, and Star Trek. She treated the series as mythology rather than schlock sci-fi and won a Chancellor's Prize for Excellence at Melbourne University. Congratulations from Eid Plednista, Dr. Baker. Story three is true. Agricultural scientists have a small pilot study going in which they turn straw into liquid gas. A byproduct of the huge grass seed industry is millions of tons of straw. Researchers are developing methods to reduce the straw to carbon particles and residue that can then be turned into liquid synthetic gas. If the system pans out, the 7 million tons of straw produced each year could become 420 million gallons of liquid fuel, according to the Agricultural Research Service. That's uh, 7 million tons of straw produced in the Pacific Northwest. All of which means that story four about most dinosaur species having been discovered is totally bogus, because researchers writing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences estimate that over 70% of all dino genuses are still out there to be found. You can read more in David Biello's September 4th article in the news section on our website, siam.com, titled, Majority of Dinosaurs May Await Discovery. Monday morning came the news that Steve Irwin, better known as the crocodile hunter, had died after being stabbed by a stingray. Irwin had a big TV persona, but he was also a committed conservationist who published some scholarly work, as was discussed coincidentally in my column in the current issue of Scientific American magazine and back on the June 28th podcast. Scientific American contributing editor Sarah Simpson spent some time with Irwin in 2001 and wrote about him in the April issue that year. I called her Tuesday morning in Kansas City. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. So you you spent some time with Steve Irwin. What what was your experience with him like? It was really quite remarkable and somewhat of a surprise. I went to Queensland, Australia, and set up a, a interview with him at his zoo, his Australia Zoo, where he grew up there near um, north of Brisbane, really wanting to find out if he was 
really the wildlife, passionate wildlife conservationist I'd heard him say he, he felt he was, or whether he was just sort of the wild man entertainer that we see on TV and just get a handle on that. And when we arrived, he and his wife, Terry, and his producer, John Staten, had set up a, a basically a whole big welcome for us, and we sat around the table. I was there with my geochemist husband, a student, and a, and a colleague, and we just all sat around the table and had just an amazing conversation that was obviously incredibly genuine and from the heart. So what was it, though, that, that really convinced you that, that he really was on the level about about conservation? I don't even think that, that he knew really what my purpose was in coming there to sort of try to, to, to really determine how, how committed he was. But every story he would tell about saving crocodiles in, in, in Indonesia or swimming with the sharks, um, whatever it may be, you know, there were always times when he would talk about the, the animals in danger and, he, you know, there would be a tear in his eye. He'd be choked up um, just a little bit, you know, not anything that came across as an act, but just as a person who is absolutely everything that you see on TV. That's just who he is. That is his passion. And he was just at every moment determined to get that across to his audiences, whether they were face-to-face or on television. Uh, I know I, I got to spend some time with uh, great evolutionary biologist Ernst Mayer, who, who then passed away. Now, he was 100 years old when he died. And uh, you hear the news and you're saddened, but, you know, this is a whole different thing. I mean, he was 44 years old. Yes. You know, and I hadn't even realized in retrospect that that meant he was you know, just still in his 30s when I met him. He had, um, at the time we met his daughter, Bindi Sue, and she was probably um, two, maybe three. And it's just heartbreaking to think um, that she and her younger brother will have to go on only seeing their father on these television programs. Sarah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember, Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And don't forget the September single-topic issue of Scientific American is out. The subject is Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. Tune in next week to hear from one of the authors of that issue's article about the future of nuclear energy. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.